Hello, listeners, and welcome to the longest episode to date of the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Troll Knife. And I'm Flip Switch. And if you are not familiar with those names, then you haven't listened to this episode yet. On the off topic, I talk about Tiny Whoops and FPV drones, a totally wholesome activity despite what the media may lead you to believe. On the content circuit, we talk about a podcast that discusses that exact same media. Then Flip Switch dives down the rabbit hole into the Matrix and explains to us why Kansas is going bye-bye. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. So, Brett, I want to hear about what you have to do to record this podcast these days because you're living up in the mountains. Yeah, I'm living at Rifle Gap State Park. What I imagine is you have like a uh, some sort of tin foil satellite dish homemade thing that you're pointing up at the sky. Is that, is that what you're doing? Uh, you mean to get to get cell service? Yeah, just working? like how how are you? Because we've been kind of struggling to get um, Skype to connect, so we're right. recording over a phone call today. But I just want to hear what you got to do. Yeah, I got this WeBoost antenna. So uh, it, it's um, it was about four hundred dollars, and it's a little bit jerry rigged onto where our awning would go, which I don't think we're going to be using our awning this summer. It's it's pretty windy here, and we don't, we're not we don't really use our awning that much anyway. Uh, you know, we usually are camping in a spot with um, some shade. But yeah, I got this thing uh, bungeed to the awning, and there's this cord that goes underneath the door and hooks to this thing, and there's an inside antenna. So internet it used to not be something we really cared about uh, when we were on the road in the Airstream or in the camper. It's We actually really liked to get away and... Uh, <laughs> get out in the boonies, but now we kind of both need the internet. But fortunately, the- unplug sometimes. Gotta unplug sometimes. But speaking of unplugging, we're going to be talking about that later. But we actually, we have a, we have a spot that has the best cell service in the state park, I think. So we're pretty lucky that we even have any signal to boost because you do need a little bit of signal to boost that signal is the way I understand it. Is it like a four meter square that you can't go outside of or you like instantly drop off? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're actually going to take it back and we're getting a new antenna and that will be uh, a little more interesting because it's going to come with a telescoping 25 foot pole. So we're, we're going to stick out a little bit. That's for sure. But you'll be able to get, let get that up and like, angle it over the horizon or whatever is required to get to the next cell tower basically. Yeah, I I think I think uh, and this might not be interesting to people, but since you asked, the I think one of the key keys to this system is that the outside antenna has to have quite a bit of vertical separation and if not vertical separation, horizontal even more horizontal separation between the inside and the outside antenna. So it's less about trying to like put your antenna high in the air and more about separating the antenna that you're is boosting the signal for your phone 
and the antenna that you're putting up on a big pole that catches the signal. Why that is, I have no idea. Maybe there's like interference between the two. I don't know, man. This It's black magic, basically. I don't know how this shit works. So are you recording from your car or are you in the, uh, are you in the Airstream? Because I know you no, said I'm that in- you might have to go set up in your car at some point. Well, you know, it, when we do an interview, we have an exciting interview coming up. Um, I don't want to be ruining an interview with um, bad internet. So right now, I got great cell service, but yeah, we've had so many issues with Zoom and with Skype and whatnot that I was thinking I would have to drive to the visitor center, set up the microphone <laughs> in uh, the car and uh you know use their wi-fi but if you know a three-way call can work then you know i think i think we're cooking with bacon as they say as the campers might be saying tomorrow morning yep that sounds like something that some uh memorial day (laughs) state park campers would say it's totally a (laughs) camping lingo definitely and then what do you got to do to prepare your recording space because you don't have very much room do you you're like Wall to wall, it's like four feet, like a prison cell kind of. Well, actually, a prison cell. <laughs> <laughs> a prison cell with wheels that afford you more freedom than most humans get. Honestly, um, we got quite quite a bit of room, but it. I mean, I guess it's all relative. We have more room in the airstream than we did when we lived in the camper. But, you know, when you live in a small space and you, you kind of do it to be outdoors, and so the outdoors is your living space, workout space. You know, you're spending more time outside. But yeah, I don't want, you know, we record once a week and I don't want a microphone to be at our coffee table, kitchen table, you know, our ba- our basically the one table that we have all the time. So I just have to set up the microphone and take it down, but it, it's that's only taken about 10 minutes, but I do just because uh th- it's a little bit noisier like in a travel trailer if you're walking around or you're like, you know, if you're doing the dishes, you're going to be 6 feet away from me. So I do have to kick Bree out of the travel trailer <laughs> when it's recording time. But I remember last week you asked me, you were like, oh, man, you don't have to kick your wife out and keep her outside. And I peeked out the window and she was laying in the hammock looking at the hummingbirds uh, through the binoculars. I'm like, I, I think she's doing OK. I think she's all oh, right. Yeah, she'll be that fine. does if sound it- pretty pleasant, actually. <laughs> if, if there's a if there's a thunderstorm, then maybe I'll let her in. We'll see. <laughs> use the umbrella, honey. You're not <laughs> supposed to use that in lightning, but. We got to record the content clearinghouse. That's right. The show must go on. That's true. So for anyone that's new to the show, Brett, why don't you uh, tell everybody how it works? Yeah, well, the content clearinghouse is all about our our favorite content. So books, movies, TV shows, video games, podcasts, really anything's on the table if it's consumable content. And uh, so much of life is consumable content these days. So every week... One of us will dive into uh, the best of the best, the best entertainment. But before we get into that, we do like to start with a little off-top, little off-topic discussion, and then uh, do uh, uh, just a quick uh, touch on what we're currently consuming on the content circuit. Anything, anything you want to add? No, that's pretty much it for the show. Um, I do want to remind everyone uh, that the show is new, so please share the content clearinghouse with your friends if you like it. 
uh, that really helps us out. So uh, with all that out of the way, let's get into it, buddy. Let's um, do it. I do. It's interesting that you were talking about antennas and uh, the separation they need to have from everything. I mean, all that stuff kind of plays into what I wanted to talk about today. Um, I wanted to talk about kind of my obsession with uh, FPV drones or first-person view drones. And I know you've, uh, I don't know if you've really flown any of my drones, but you've definitely seen my drone wall at my house, right? Yeah, I think you, I think I wanted to fly one of your drones, but it must have been a really nice drone or a really new drone because I don't remember ever flying (laughs) one of your drones. Yeah, there's definitely like a sliding scale of things that you'll let your friends fly. You've got your like, your really expensive, like your, it's like a five inch drone. Like the propellers are five inches and, you know, it weighs like 350 grams. And uh, our good friend, Mike, who I flew drones with a lot, described flying one of those as like going outside and throwing your PlayStation up in the air and like, wee, I hope it doesn't break (laughs) because, you know, it costs four or 500 bucks to build one. But there, right. there are also these extremely tiny drones that are 20 grams in size, and they're almost unbreakable for a beginner. So there is like a, there's a wide range of things that are available. But for anyone that is not familiar with drones or with FPV, FPV is simply first-person video drones. So you may have seen like drone racing on TV. That's essentially what FPV is. And I know like my first introduction to FPV was back in 2015, there was this one video that was going around the internet. It was these French guys flying these drones in the in the forest. And it kind of like totally blew up the scene. Like all of a sudden drones were just kind of like in the zeitgeist because this thing was just, it was just everywhere, you know? And it people were comparing it to pod racing because seeing the video, you know, they had like GoPros mounted on the front of the drones and they're just weaving in and out of trees. You know, it's like, it's kind of like the speeder bikes in Star Wars or like pod racing, like everybody was making those connections. And that kind of like catapulted this into everyone's consciousness. Um, That was, for me, I saw that and I just kind of dropped everything that I was interested in. I was like, oh man, I got to figure out how to get into FPV. You know, it's it just seems so alluring to me as someone who loves flying. Totally. And, you know, I, I could see, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there would be an easy transition or at least a, a skill set that carries over from free flying and from skydiving because you just are, you know, you dirt dive or you practice this, that you prepare for the skydive on the ground and imagine yourself in different orientations in a three-dimensional uh sort of way and i imagine with the drone you kind of have to have that same sense of thinking about things in three dimensions but maybe not if it's fpv i mean i I imagine it'd be very difficult to race drones if you weren't looking through a camera that's basically mounted on the drone and you have to like reverse the controls when it's facing you but i mean was there do you think there's any carryover on those skills well, there's definitely like a spatial awareness, um, you know, coming from skydiving since it is like such a three-dimensional playground, just having that awareness of like, ha- you know, understanding you can move forward and backwards. Um, you have the sensation of flight. Something that you don't get with skydiving is the ability to go up. And then you have these 
the drones just fly in like such a radical way. Like I've compared them to the way I imagine an alien fighter jet would fly. It's almost like not beholden to the laws of uh, physics as far as like having a meat body in the cockpit because there's nobody there. You, you don't have to worry about G-forces or anything like that. So you can start and stop on a dime. You can be going 60 miles an hour and just do like some crazy acrobatic maneuver, flip over backwards, do a barrel roll, and then instantly be going the other direction. You don't have to worry about liquefying yourself against the cockpit right. wall. You know, it's all, it, you almost have like this telepathic connection to the drone after a while. And it's, it's really empowering, unlike really anything else that I've ever been involved in. Have, have you seen that um, it's a manned drone that they're going to start racing? Yeah, so the uh, the DCL uh, is just one of these big drone racing uh, companies, and I'm not sure if this manned drone is something that they are intending to actually have people sit in and fly or if it's more of like a publicity stunt. Um, we can find some links to the video, though. It's pretty amazing to see a human sitting in, uh, I mean, they call them quadcopters, I believe, in you know, because typically they have four right. props on them. In this video, this DCL video, I think that they have eight props. Oh, really? And I don't I know imagine if I've seen that one then. Uh, I, I, think that's, I think they're like the props are stacked on top of each other. We'll link it and find out. But okay. I imagine they would do that for redundancy and also for additional lift. Um, it does <laughs> – a person sitting in a drone flying around is pretty nuts because – I mean, one thing I wasn't prepared for getting into drones was how unreliable they can be because you're essentially building them from home. And also just this ever-expanding skill set that was going to be required of me to actually be able to fly them. I found this I found this meme that it, it's a picture of Boromir from um, Lord, of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, Sean Bean. Yeah, and yeah. it says, one does not simply get into FPV it's in quotes and then underneath it it's like you must have a basic knowledge of and then it's like soldering servos linkages electronics aerodynamics programming RF theory motor sizing battery sizing blah 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 goes on for like that was the first two lines of the meme that I just read it goes on for another 30 lines or something wow and you you feel like you had to learn all of that then because I've seen like your soldering table and you've definitely done a lot of uh electronics or maintenance work on them it seems like yeah i wouldn't say that i have a working knowledge of everything that's listed in this meme but the things that i have learned in fpv have it's it's been this amazing expansion of just what i felt like i'm capable of because just going into it i didn't know how to read a wiring diagram i didn't know how to solder i can't i can't even Describe how many components I ruined in the beginning. Just not know how to use a screwdriver. Exactly, that was a new one to me. A hammer, I had that, but it's like you're not supposed to crush any of these things with a hammer, so <laughs> that didn't help. Um, but I, you know, over time, like joining these Facebook groups and just kind of like picking everyone's brain, I w- I picked up a lot of these skills. I think the most important thing that I learned from FPV was this ability to just teach myself anything that I'm interested in. And before I got into FPV, there were definitely things that I was like, oh yeah, I'd love to do that, but I don't really think I have the drive or motivation to sit down and 
just immerse myself in it. But I've realized with this, you know, if there's something that I'm truly interested in, and now that I understand how to use YouTube to find resources, how to use social media groups, uh, just to, to get the information that I need, I've realized that I, I can really teach myself most of these technical skills with the proper determination and motivation and, you know, the drive to see my objectives through. I mean, honestly, it's the reason that anyone is sitting there listening to this podcast right now was because I learned to teach myself these things through FPV. That's exactly how I learned to put together, you know, all this recording equipment. So it's really, it was really neat to kind of unlock that next level with, you know, in my brain, I feel like FPV really did that for me. Ah, that's really cool. I mean, that's, I, it, it really is fascinating how anything you want to learn how to do almost anything you can just find on YouTube. I mean, you can just teach, teach skills to yourself or there's like hundreds of free college courses, language courses on the internet, you know, and it, it really is like the, the weak link in the system of, of knowledge is really our own motivation. It really is. And like the amount of free time that you have. Yeah. But that's what I've realized with something like this is when I'm really into something, I don't feel like I'm wasting time to be, you know, if I have downtime to sit on my phone, just like, Oh, I need to understand a little bit better. Like, how to apply flux to a soldering job so the heat applies properly to the components. Oh, you, you know, got it's a like flux the, capacitor on that thing. That's exactly awesome. yeah. These that's I didn't mention that before. But they all travel through time. It's just like the <laughs> standard starting point. That makes sense. But one of the one of the coolest communities in FPV is this community called Tiny Whoop. So Tiny Whoops are these small. These are the the tiny drones that I talked about, like the Brett proof drones that I was mentioning earlier. <laughs> Uh, they're like 20 grams. They have like a plastic frame as opposed to like a carbon fiber frame that would be on a full-size racing drone. They're fully acrobatic, so you can do all this crazy like alien fighter jet type piloting with them, but they're cheap. They're small. They're easy to learn. They're really like the best starting point in FPV, and uh, they have this huge learning curve, so you can start off like in the beginning stages, but you can take these things through all the way like to flying, you know, at a pro level of racing or just producing amazing YouTube videos. For me, like I was completely obsessed with tiny whoops because having kids, it was hard for me to go out to a field and fly. But with a tiny whoop, I could fly like aerobatic in my in my house, you know, like two-story house diving from the top floor to the bottom and doing like all these cool tricks. I could do that like while the kids were napping. So yeah, tiny whoop I, I was remember like seeing your uh, for me. You set up like a obstacle course in your house. I've seen a ton of your tiny whoop videos, man. It's awesome. Now, you think that drone is small enough to fly in the uh, the the cracked window of your neighbor's house when they're sleeping? Uh, I mean, I guess it depends on if you want to fall into like the all drone pilots are creeps. They're trying to <laughs> spy on you. I. <laughs> I heard oh, I, an interview with uh, yeah. another drone pilot that was talking about this. Like he was getting yelled at by some like old angry lady at a park, like that they were spying on her. And he was like, "Listen, lady, if I was going to spy on somebody, it would be somebody way more attractive than you and your stupid dog." Oh my so, gosh! Most people just not worth spying on. 
that's you're not wrong about that. Now, uh, is there a law in the United States, or maybe it's dependent on the state? Can someone shoot down your tiny whoop drone? I mean, I guess it's it, to have a tiny whoop, you can probably evade uh, most of the gunfire that's that's sent your way. But is there laws? Is there like a shoot on sight law? I'm not a uh, drone don't lawyer, tread on but. Me. <laughs> I have heard about people shooting down drones, flying over their property. I mean, kind of like the the etiquette is you really shouldn't be flying over someone else's private property. And not everyone adheres to this, but kind of like my own personal law, or my own rule, I should say, was I didn't want to fly over anything I I wouldn't be safe crashing onto. There you but go. There are people that are doing really that long cross-country trips with like flying up to a mountaintop or something. And when you're doing that, you know, you, you're kind of accepting if I crash out in the woods, I'm not getting this drone back. But when I was flying full size stuff, I would never fly it over my, you know, my neighbor's yard to get somewhere. I would always take like follow the streets. So if it crashes, I'm at least crashing into an unpopulated area. You know, some something, just something on that. Um, you know, when you and I were skydiving together a lot back in the day, uh, I was doing a lot of balloon jumps. I know you and I have done a balloon jump together, but I, I've gone up in a balloon uh, several times. I don't think I've ever landed in a balloon. I can't remember a time where I've actually landed in the basket of the balloon because I always jumped out. But I know Bree has, you know, ridden in the balloon with me and rode back down in the balloon. And she, I remember one time when they landed in this farmer's field and the balloon pilot told all the passengers like, okay, we got to load up the basket. We got to carry this thing to the road. We got to be quick because this farmer comes out with his shotgun because we landed on one of his horses or scared one of his horses a couple years ago, or it was a different balloon or whatever. And so this guy is really upset and really sensitive about balloons on his property. And I, you know, I was hearing this story secondhand and I was like, uh, this is this is crazy, and I don't know exactly the the rules, but the way I understand it, if you're a hot air balloon, you're kind of at the mercy of the wind, and you can just land wherever is available to you. So it's not, like, not everyone appreciates the majesty of human flight the same way we do, Brett. Right. Some people just care about their stupid grass. <laughs> But it's I mean, like that that uh, idea uh, is pretty a, common. Having a horse, having a horse like injured or killed by, you know, some tourists going for a flight in a balloon, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah, I can that's totally understand. Bogus. That's pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, a lot of skydiving operations have like a farmer McNasty, you know, it's like the the guy who owns property near the the skydiving facility that right. every once in a while someone'll have an accidental landing on their property and they're like usually on your map at the drop zone it'll be like X'd out, like you cannot land here or we're risking right, the, right. this drop zone being in existence because this guy will sue us, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, kind of the same, I mean, kind of the same respect rules definitely apply when flying drones. You know, just not flying over someone's property and not risk crashing onto their property because that just kind of gives drones a bad name. They've already got kind of a bad name in the media right now because of things like this and also... There are all these regulations coming down the pipe that, you know, they're trying to require all drones over a certain size, which I think is like 200 grams to have like, you know, a transponder that's view that's visible to aircraft, which. So you can fly 10 
10 uh, tiny whoops in formation and you're you're good to go. Well, I mean, that's like the beauty of the tiny whip. Like that's why I love it so much. You know, it's it's not really lumped into these new regulations that are coming. People think that these regulations are going to kill FPV as it stands right now because, you know, it's all about building these flying robots at your, you know, at home in your own personal build station and modifying them, you know, having complete control over the components and the the build that you're putting up in the air. And if these new governmental regulations come in and require you that you have to use certain components that have these transponders in them, then a lot of people are worried it's going to kill that entire side of this hobby. But I, I don't believe that Tiny Wolf would really be affected by that because they're small enough. You know, they're small enough to kind of slide in under the radar and most of the flying is really done indoors. Yeah, exactly. Through the crack, you see the <laughs> ugly lady lives next to you. <laughs> and Tiny Whip has, I think, like one of the most interesting and amazing characters in all the FPV scene. Uh, so the the Tiny Whip, he's kind of like, he's kind of like the the leader of the Tiny Whip revolution. His name is Jesse Perkins, and uh, he's actually set up. Tiny Whip is set up just north of where I live. Um, about 20 minutes north of me in uh, Loveland, Colorado. And he, you know, he is responsible for kind of building this community online on Facebook and Instagram. It's just like this kind of safe space for people that want to learn about drones. And, you know, the, the entire online community is completely welcoming to new people. Um, and he kind of regulates it and, you know, discourages negativity, which is so amazing. A, a lot of these like technical kind of, groups and communities can can have like an elitism associated with them and i've seen this with other drone groups just you know s- similar things on facebook to tiny whoop but they're just like if, if you're asking newbie questions just like get out of here nobody wants to nobody wants to mess with that you need to know all these answers didn't you read the meme basically didn't you and, read uh, the meme? well you know what nerds of the world unite because it's a hard world out there and we gotta you know uh, in groups got to stick together and protect their own and and you know just don't let anybody in well he I'm just, Jesse I'm really, just kidding. yeah i mean like that that is unfortunately the way some of these these groups work but like Jesse really discourages that so that's great if anybody's interested in drones tinywhoop.com i mean that's a great place to start they have amazing starting packages from someone who's never flown before all the way up to build your own style, you know, DIY kits, uh, the Facebook groups, tiny whoop and Instagram. Uh, those are awesome references as well. And you get to see a lot of really cool video and Jesse's always putting out amazing stuff. Like on the tiny whoop YouTube channel, they call him the Willy Wonka of FPV because his shop is just like, it's full of, just all these amazing art pieces and things that he's turned into like tiny whip obstacles. Like I've been to, I've been to a few events there. Uh, I went to one called the tiny whip invitational 2019 where he created this course where like every, they call them gates that you fly through. Like every gate was either like some kind of crazy mirror cube or like a tunnel that was like a kaleidoscope or up in the rafters above, you know, like the work area in the shop, he had all these inflated like Chinese lamps 
and it was set up to look like a like a field of clouds and it was part of the race course and the he's like the goal is you have to go through here then you have to come back around and weave your way through the clouds then you have to go through here and you're kind of flying this figure eight up through these these clouds and all this stuff is like it's so magical when you're seeing it through like your fpv goggles because you really are projecting yourself into like almost like another consciousness wherever the drone goes is like where you are you're no longer sitting in your chair like down on the floor you're up in the rafters of this building so it's i would highly recommend drones in particular fpv and tiny whoop specifically for anyone that's interested in stuff like this because it really is a it's a it's a great way to just kind of expand your mind and get into this other hobby that i mean you have no idea where it's going to take you well i <clears throat> i'm you got me uh you got me convinced i'm going to talk to the rangers tomorrow i'm i'm sure this state park uh ha- has like a permit that's required for drones or something i don't think state parks or national parks are super drone friendly so i yeah, might kinda just gotta go into the back country to get away with it right right but that sounds awesome i want to put there's some, some goggles good, on there's some good resources uh so tinywhoop.com also tinywhoop uh youtube channel facebook page and instagram uh drl which is the drone racing league they broadcast on twitter and on nbc and drl for anyone who's seen it you know it is amazing they're flying full-size racing drones through like stadiums through like these old steel factories it's it's so it's just so badass now when you say a full-size racing drone how big is that so the the drones they fly in drl are six inch props so wow they're pretty big i mean they're probably uh 10 inches from prop to prop okay it's like almost a square foot basically yeah i mean it's it's still i mean you you hold it in your hands but you know it probably weighs 500 grams something like that but they have them all lit up with like flashing lights still in the yankee system of weight so well that's one thing drones drones taught me also is I don't think about grams in any other capacity other than when it comes to drones, but everything, you know, it's all like parts from China and things, you know, like almost, almost none of this stuff is coming from America. So you really do start thinking that way. Um, also, since I am the world's most humble man, I'll share my Facebook pages or my, uh, my YouTube channel as well. Josh Evans FPV, where, uh, whenever I was really hitting tiny whip hard and, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of pushing to try to expand like what the tiny whoops could do. So for a while I was flying on the tiny whoop team and, uh, my YouTube channel is pretty cool too. So I'll push that as well. And nice. you know, anyone that's interested, you can also, I've done this with a lot of people, like just find me on Facebook, instant message me and ask me any questions you have, because I'd be happy to point you towards the proper equipment to get started. Nice. Well, that's awesome, Josh. Tiny whoop. Yeah. So uh, how about your content it. circuit, man? You doing anything you know, new? Yeah, I, I finally, now that we're all kind of settled here at the state park, um, I finally got to uh, dive back into some content. So really, uh, the three things I feel like since the last time I talked to you, I've been listening to a little Joe Rogan again. Um, that Elon, Mo- Elon Musk podcast, I don't know, kind of turned me off for a while, but, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick was on recently and she's 
she's into nutrition. She studies a lot of vitamin D stuff. I think she's a PhD and she's uh, done a lot of research on intermittent fasting, prolonged fasts. So I, I really like when she's on and she's truly like a scientist. So she doesn't just, you know, talk out of her, you know what? Um, J-hole. That's right. Yeah. So I've also been listening to Rabbit Hole, uh, which oh, is- Oh, yeah. You yeah. turned me on to that one. Dude, I had no idea about PewDiePie. I, I can't believe how that? separated from like internet culture I have to have no idea what the PewDiePie uh, subculture of YouTube and oh my gosh. Well, you know what's interesting about PewDiePie is he had like, he got such a bad face in the media because of like all these stunts they're talking about on rabbit hole where they're talking about like the stuff that he did on Fiverr. Uh, I'm sure yeah. if anybody's interested, just Google PewDiePie and Fiverr and you'll see like the kind of stuff he was doing. Like it's all pretty messed up. Yeah. Super anti-Semitic hearing... messages being held, but he was like yeah, trying so... to push the envelope to see how, you know, what, what people would be willing to do for $5 or at least that's what he says. It's, it's pretty crazy stuff, man. So like what, what I think is interesting about, uh, rabbit hole is all of the press I'd heard about PewDiePie in the past have been negative press. And then rabbit hole like really paints him in a light of being maybe like not such a bad guy. And it really made me, it made me think about like the perspective that you're viewing things from so much of it really is like the angle that you're viewing the scenario from. And also the way that the information is being framed and presented to you because rabbit hole makes you come away from it like, oh yeah, PewDiePie is not that bad of a guy. But if you look well, at I, any- that's not the impression I've gotten so far. I, I feel like they've done really good reporting, and it's been pretty unbiased. But I also haven't heard the interview yet with PewDiePie. That was on the next. That was on the next I, episode. I just um, listened to that one. Okay. See, I but haven't the, gotten the, there yet. The thing is that, like, he presents his case, and you're like, clearly, like, you're making terrible choices, but. You know, when he presents his case, you I kind of felt like he's not like malicious about it. He's doing like what you were saying, like he's trying to push the envelope and he's doing it in a really unfortunate way that it's going to be hard to construe it any other way. But also, you know, like when you take into account like what his show was or what his show is about how he was, you know, he he's trying to see like he's trying to expose from his own words, like how messed up Fiverr is. Right. And I don't know. It's just everything else. They would just take clips and they would just be like, here's a picture of PewDiePie with some like anti-Semitic messaging projected next to his head. And you're just like, Oh, he's obviously like the world's biggest dick. It's just, I wouldn't say that I'm a PewDiePie fan at all because I'm not going to go out and, you know, join his, his army of any or anything. But I just think like the concept of viewing things from different perspectives is really like it's put on display whenever you, you know, when you listen to something like rabbit hole. Totally. Well, I, I mean, that's the whole, what the whole show's about is how YouTube, you know, if you watch one video, it's going to show you related content that is something it thinks you'll like. So you start with conspiracy videos, you'll get a bunch of conspiracy videos or flat earth, you, baby, you know, <laughs> flat earth. Um, and you, you won't know, get any echoes talking... from us screaming that though, because there's <laughs> nothing out there. 
I mean, it was interesting to me that there was the the guy that's featured in the show that was kind of drawn from the extreme right, the alt right to the extreme left, and one of the YouTube personalities that kind of was owning people or whatever uh, was a transgendered person that was uh, goose stepping and dressing in Nazi memorabilia, and this was somebody doing it as satire who was liberal. So I mean, it, it's just such a like bizarre culture and it's very confusing (laughs) and it made me realize that even the craziest YouTube hole I've fallen down has never taken me to those places and for that I am thankful you know my 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 most extreme YouTube stuff is like John Oliver talking about uh, sports and the coronavirus and you know a little political glad I'm old enough or I'm, I'm glad I'm too old to have gotten sucked deep into that culture it just yeah. seems, from the outside, it just seems so annoying, like something that I would never want to be involved in, just being deep into like YouTube conspiracy. It just, oh man, it's, there's not enough is, time in the is, world. It really is a big part of the culture right now. I mean, it, people do not trust mainstream news sources. And, you know, I think that that's in part, ju- it's... It's understandable to some extent, but some of the other sources of news are, uh, I mean, they're not harmless. I mean, I think that, you, you know, this stuff can be very, very dangerous. And when you hear about the New Zealand uh, shooter, the mass shooter that was saying to subscribe to PewDiePie after he was going into mosques, I mean, it's sickening to think that, you know, if... Maybe PewDiePie isn't a bad guy. Maybe he was pushing the envelope. I don't. I don't know because I didn't even know about him until I started listening to this great podcast, Rabbit Hole. But uh, well, I would on. be Before you go mortified further, if I was that guy, man. Did, I would be you, mortified. Did you hear the part where they were talking about the other things that guy said? Like he said, subscribe to PewDiePie, but he also called out all these other YouTube channels, and then they found like his manifesto where he was saying that he was trying to like so discontent in the yeah. online world by right, totally. but that but like, that, like he wasn't even he, he wasn't even into all these things because well obviously because i think that you could definitely take PewDiePie as being like a major dick which that's like the bad decision making you know it's like right. you, you probably shouldn't be putting that stuff out there at all but you know in that interview they talked to him and he's like he said that when all that happened he was like out of communique, you know, he was like somewhere without internet and it all happened. And then he started getting all these messages and, you know, to hear him talk about it, he was like, Oh my God, I can't believe like what I, what I have created in this world has evolved into this, you know, like, and they just present him in like a human side. And yeah, I, I'm really curious to hear that. I really want to hear that. I know the, the guy that wrote the anarchist cookbook, has spent like his whole life, uh, you know, very regretful of that because, of course, the anarchists' cookbook that was shared I I online a bunch. Yeah, I mean, I probably had a copy too when I was a kid. It was just something you downloaded on LimeWire or some, you know, Pirate Bay P two P network. But that was, it was an integral something... part of the blasting pit in our backyard. <laughs> there you go, absolutely. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong, I think, with having information. But, you know, when you have like the Columbine shooters that use that and then it, you know, it it becomes 
kind of this like symbol of violence. And then you got the guy that created it when he was in high school and was kind of an angsty teenager. And now he's grown up and he's, he's like, why, you know, he feels horrible and he spent his whole life dedicated to bringing peace to the world now. So it's really interesting to see these story arcs of people that make mistakes and can own those mistakes and, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about like the Columbine shooters. I'm talking about the guy that wrote the anarchist cookbook. I mean, we can well, only have you said, so much forgiveness in our heart. <laughs> well, oh, fuck those guys. But the Columbine, that's the worst people that's ever lived. But, uh, what you said about like the mainstream media, mainstream media also la- latched onto with Columbine because those guys mentioned doom, the video game, they latched onto that and it like spawned this entire conversation i guess you could put it in quotes it wasn't really a conversation it was just like a constant news cycle of video games causing violence and there have been countless studies that have looked into this and have found like absolutely no link and if anything found like an anti-link between video games and violence but you know it's like that stuff really highlights the failings of our i guess like our standard news sources you know like the cnn the fox news like that stuff is, it's like painfully obvious today how they're not interested in reporting the news. They're interested in basically bagging on the other side, reporting, you know, the the worst, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type information. Yeah, clickbait, kind of like a yeah, clickbait, clickbait style reporting. Trump, anti-Trump, and then vi- video games cause violence, and the here's all the people that in died the, in the what, 80s. Right. Yeah, like all these things, like those, like our mainstream media is like such a failure of the system. And, you know, like I've heard that it kind of started when the 24-hour news cycle went live and they just- Yeah, that makes a lot of sense not, to me. There's not enough to talk about unless you're just almost creating your own news. And that's a lot of like what CNN and Fox do. Of Like half of what you see during the- Corona broadcasts are these little either sound bites taken like out of context that make Trump look smart or make him look dumb. And something like a creed that I kind of lived on is you, you never trust a quote out of context because it's almost always, if it's being presented out of context, it's almost always being done that way to make you feel a certain way, to make you fall into a certain camp. And, and to me that like embodies what the news is. It's either creating its own news by causing problems or quotes out of context and clickbait. And you're tuned into a the politics clearing house with Josh and Brett. <laughs> oh man, we have so no idea what we're talking about. Circuit. Yeah. That's why uh, I'm moving on. <laughs> man, I have been striking out lately, trying to find some good horror. Um I found like all these horror lists talking about like the house of the devil is like this this like multi award winning horror movie, you know, like Josh, just turn on like the news, a, bro. Yeah, that's the Problem solved. that's the best horror you're gonna find. But they say <laughs> like the House of the Devil is this like this kind of like throwback film, you know, seventies and eighties style filming processes using like modern up to date techniques and equipment. And, you know, like last night I was like, Oh yeah, I'm really excited because I love like a good horror movie. And it's just to me just so disappointing. And I've I feel like lately just horror movie after horror movie have been letting me down. So if anybody has any good recommendations for horror, 
you know, contact us on Facebook or Instagram at the Content Clearinghouse with your ideas because I'm always looking for something good. Other than that, I've been uh, I've got uh, reading a series by Jack Carr. Uh, the series is The Terminal List, which I'm actually talking about next week. So I don't want to go too deep into it, but it is absolutely amazing. Jack Carr is like a ex Navy SEAL, and a lot of them become authors because they're just like super smart dudes. So he can really uh, spin a yarn. So the Terminal List nice. is a great series if you're into receiving your information through the written word. Through the through the written word, handed down by God. I'm a big fan. Excellent. All right, well, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we will get into some content. Ooh, content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've been. <gasps> Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. Clear it out. Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse, your one-stop shop for information about drones, uninformed political views, and whatever the hell Brett's talking about today. <laughs> I know what it is, but Brett, what are you talking about? Well, buddy... Have you heard about a little movie called The Matrix? Never heard of it. Okay. Well, this is perfect. Oh, um, man. I can't wait to hear what this is about. <laughs> so I think you better turn on your TDCS, uh, take a couple new tropics, and maybe even uh, take and a couple already. <laughs> take a couple of deep breaths because we're taking the red pill and we're going down the rabbit hole. So I found a online hacker name generator for this episode. So for from here on out, you are now Troll Knife, and I am Flip Switch. <laughs> Troll Knife. <laughs> oh man! The first first one that popped up, I was like, that, "All right, that one's Flip Switch, lay it on me." All right, Troll Knife. Troll Knife. 
The Matrix is an action sci-fi movie that released in the spring of 1999, also known as the year of peak human civilization, according to The Matrix. Agent Smith. That's right. Yeah. Uh, 21 years ago, uh, I was 10 years old, and I don't remember exactly when I saw The Matrix. I imagine I was probably a little bit older than 10. It's rated R. Um, I believe it's rated R. There's no way it's oh, PG-13. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. They well, drop a lot of F-bombs in this movie. Oh, for sure. Well, um, I do remember the end of 1999 very clearly because of all the Y2K hubbub. And it's kind of funny considering the panic the, uh, surrounding Y2K or the millennium bug, if you remember all of that. Because it was really- If you're into th- hysteria- yeah, you might have heard of it if you were watching the news. Yeah, um, exactly. It was it was, it was really, the flat Earth of our time. It, it really was <laughs> so ridiculous. So I realized recently it was my first brush with real life apocalyptic hysteria. Like you said, I mean that's a perfect word for it. And then later there was the end of the world that was coming due to some Mayan just getting tired of chiseling glyphs into the stone that's totally what it was based on oh well they never made another calendar i i doubt it was because their civilization ended right i'm sure he thought it would be safe if they needed to extend their calendar he could just get his great 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 grandkids to do some chiseling exactly Um, but now i i feel like i'm in my third end of the world lifetime cycle and although this moment uh, probably pales in comparison to what people were feeling during World War II or the Cold War with bombs coming down all the time, nuclear annihilation uh, being a real possibility from Soviet Russia or even us. I, I remember that when I was a kid. I remember do you really? Because I grew up in the 80s. Yeah, I was, I was born in 79. So I remember having nuclear drills in school, like in... 1987 Getting under the table something. and everything yes yes Do you guys I, have uh, like was... gas masks that you would don or anything like that N- no they didn't care that much about us <laughs> okay they weren't gonna <laughs> spend any of their budget on us they barely but, have uh, money for pencils <laughs> yeah exactly but i remember that growing up like that was a big part of being a kid when i was you know a kid yeah well um that's that's seems way more serious than what i mean nuclear war uh seems to dwarf what's happening right now but i still cannot discount the fact we really are smack dab in the middle of a global pandemic an economic and political meltdown and i'm feeling a little bit like this apocalypse thing might just be repeated every eight to ten years or so so even almost as if it has something to do with the news cycle (laughs) All right, uh, I'll I'll uh, you can plug your YouTube conspiracy channel on the next show. So oh, yeah, the next show is all about YouTube. All right, continue. Um, so even if it's not like 2012 or Y2K, and there's you know if it's if there's no actual danger pose like those years, it, there might just be a larger reflection of all us individually grappling with the inevitability of our demise 
or maybe there is actually a sense, a, a real concern that there's a catastrophic event or a, some kind of singularity on the horizon that will completely wipe out the human race, and it is our fate. And all of these topics and more are explored in The Matrix, a movie that to some might seem to be more about guns, leather, and kung fu. That is my guess to what people think of when I bring up The Matrix. Sunglasses that clip to your nose, gratuitous violence in the form of gunfire and hand-to-hand combat, a 30-year-old Carrie Ann Moss in her shiny leather-clad butt, so prominently <laughs> featured in many scenes. <laughs> and probably the poster. There was also, of course, Keanu Reeves, the actor who starred in the sad Keanu internet meme where he's sitting on a park bench alone eating a sandwich. But, uh, you know, no leather clad butts from him. <laughs> Just a giant leather coat. Yep. Which, uh, you know, I, I really love Keanu Reeves, both the That's actor great, and the man. person. I am going to talk more about him at the end of the episode, but really quick, I want to encourage you to think of Keanu Reeves like the world's greatest Pokemon. So Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was his first iteration. Then he evolved into Johnny Utah from Point Break. Neo was his next form. Now he's up to John Wick, and I'm pretty sure he's going to become Charizard pretty soon. All right, dip switch. I'm thinking about it. That's your that's your name, right? What's your name? Do you call me Dick Switch? It's Flip Switch. No, Dip Switch. Oh, Flip Switch. Okay. All right, Flip Switch. I I got it. Uh, you can call me whatever you want. I'm I'm not gonna be a good hacker. Hold on, let me write down flip switch real quick so I don't make that mistake again. All right, continue flip All switch. All my passwords are just password with a zero instead of a 69 420 <laughs> <laughs> all right so let's look back at the masterpiece of entertainment that came out so long ago if you were born when the matrix was released you could legally drink in the united states today 21 years buddy do the action scenes hold up though. yes do the special God, effects look awesome holds up so well <laughs> yes does yes. Carrie Ann Moss still look amazing at 52 years old? Yes. yes. 52 times over. I can't believe it. But what is it about this movie that doesn't just appeal to teenage boys, but is worthy of being called a true masterpiece? And I'm going to boil it down to two things, the concepts that are explored and the execution of the concepts. So here comes my highest praise for The Matrix, as well as the spoilers which I think is safe for a 21-year-old movie. Definitely. As a full-time, part-time contentologist, I'm taking the public stance right here, right now, that The Matrix was not only one of the most prescient and relevant philosophical pieces of mainstream content during the transition from the 90s into the aughts, but even today, two decades later, it continues to set the bar for entertainment that explores the dystopia-tinged and technologically-driven zeitgeist of right now. That's our second zeitgeist bomb in this That's, episode. I know. I can't believe it. You know, so, before you go before you go yeah. on, I, I do want to talk about there's two things that you brought up about the yeah. concepts and the execution. Because the concepts, like this, this movie really is like 
I talked about this in Avatar, but it is like a, a vantage point. And the vantage point that it provides is like a whole other way to view the world. Like in times of stress, it just gives you, you know, another perspective on not the way the world is, but the way the world could be. And it, it, it helps put in perspective like when you're dealing with your own issues. And that's one thing like that I think the Matrix does really well. Its concepts are like so well developed. It really makes I, you stop and think like what if the world was this? I agree. Well, that's what's so genius about this. It might it might be like this, and we're going to get into it, it that. It could be. Yeah, simulation theory. But uh, the execution also, another thing that we talked about in Avatar was, you know, James Cameron wanted to create Avatar the same year The Matrix came out, but what he wanted as far as special effects, it was, it was too extensive. And what the, the Matrix does so well is they you know, they boil their special effects down to like these very specific shots. And again, very specific concepts, which, which they created with the bullet time and all that. And they, they use them in like such a, such a finessed manner that a lot of times you like kind of forget you're even seeing an effect shot. And this is in the age of like CGI, like being in its nascent period. So this is, what did you say? Phantom Menace? The Phantom Menace age exactly. of CG. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they, like the, what was available, it was very powerful, but no one knew how to harness it except for the Wachowskis. Like, well, a few other people maybe, but these, you know, these guys really knew what they were doing. There's a reason that this is on the content clearinghouse. I mean, this truly is one of my all-time favorite movies. Yeah. I revisited this week because you were going to cover it and... I enjoyed every second of it, and I've been thinking about it ever since. <laughs> Me so, too. Go on. I, I can't wait to hear your take. So, I'm going to have a lot to say about this. I'm so glad. This is going to be the longest episode, and uh, you're just going to have to watch The Matrix at, right after you listen to this. So, uh, The overall concept, uh, basically, it's our collectively shared reality, is actually a computer simulation programmed to enslave our minds because the artificial intelligence we engaged in nuclear war with needs some kind of energy source. So apparently we intentionally scorched the skies with nukes to cut off the solar energy supply. They started growing human beings like crops to use as batteries, but to enslave our minds So we don't rebel against the machines. The AI built us a virtual world that replicates our real 1999 Phantom Menace world with all of its technology, (laughs) with all its real world problems. Of course, that last part is important. And now I'm going to break down some of my favorite concepts that I just mentioned. But I do have a question for you. Troll knife. (laughs) All right. Flip switch. Hit, Hit me. If somehow the Wachowskis caught a glimpse of the true nature of reality and actually got it right, would you consider yourself a AA battery, a 9-volt battery, or something else entirely? Ooh, well, (laughs) I would say that I'm probably a uh, lithium polymer battery because we were talking about drones earlier, and that's what drones use. All right. I like that. I would just be that fifth grade science experiment where you plug something into a lemon. (laughs) (laughs) Potato battery. I'm the battery that's in a dildo. (laughs) 
<laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's what you'd be very popular in the quarantine. <laughs> Get the troll knife. <laughs> Get the troll knife. <laughs> oh boy, we're never gonna get through this. Um, so the the first concept that I want to talk about is that we are living in a virtual world or some kind of simulation, and we don't know better. Uh, the simulation that we're living in would be the Matrix. That's what the movie's named after. Now, this is very famously representative of the Greek philosopher Plato's allegory of the cave. This is brought up a lot. Uh, not the humans are batteries for machines part, but that false reality appearing to be real and that ba- that basic question, what is real? It's so just pretty much some- like the first thing anyone with any grip on philosophy brings up is the allegory totally. of the cave. And rightfully so. But it so. is endlessly fascinating. It is, absolutely. And just for a little context, if you're not familiar with this, and I enjoyed reading up about it because I only know enough to, I don't know, try to sound smart in a conversation. I don't know that much about philosophy, and I think this stuff is really interesting. But the allegory of the cave, it was first presented in Plato's work, The Republic, in 375 BC. And in this thought experiment, a group of people have lived chained to the wall of a cave their entire lives, and they're facing a blank wall. They watch these shadows projected on the wall from objects that are passing in front of a fire behind them so i mean they even give names to these shadows and these shadows are basically the prisoner's reality so in the republic socrates who's plato's mentor explains how the philosopher is like a prisoner who has been freed from the cave at least in the way that he comes to understand that the shadows on the wall are not reality that he can perceive the true form of reality rather than the manufactured reality that of the shadows that's seen by the prisoners. So the inmates in this allegory, they don't even desire to leave their prison because they don't know of a better life. Eventually, the prisoners manage to break their bonds. They discover reality is not what they thought it was. And this is basically verbatim the first story arc of Neo. Yeah, it's all, so, about, all about perspective. Right. So if uh, if you are curious about reading more about this, I'm going to link to um, a in our show notes. It's uh, from a philosopher's journey, a blog. It's called uh, The Matrix and the Allegory of the Cave, I think. it's They kind of dive into a, the relationship between the movie and the real allegory. If you... Also, if you do want to check out our links and you're listening on Spotify, we haven't gotten those show notes to work yet. So you can go to our website, cchpod.com, because we're going to have a lot of cool extra content for you. Now, the crazy thing is about this, the idea of our apparent reality being simulated, this is not a sci-fi story. This is not just some dilemma old people that are now mostly marble busts thought about. This is a very real and modern scientific theory, as you already mentioned, the simulation hypothesis. And I was looking online for this episode. One of my favorite conclusions comes from Nick Bostrom, who's going to come up again in this episode. He wrote an article called, Are We Living in a Computer Simulation? I will also link that in the notes. The basic premise of this is that these serious technologists and futurologists 
I always thought they were called futurists, but on this article, they're, they're called contentologists. <laughs> there you go. That's us. There's buddy. another kind of ologist out there. <laughs> There's so many ologists. <laughs> for for every ology, you'll have an ologist. Oh, so. um, I guess that makes sense. That's that's just basic English, right? Uh, so these. These very smarter, smarter ologists uh, predict. <laughs> Speaking of English, um, they they predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. So, if you assume those predictions are correct, which they likely are, if we make it that far, later generations might take these super powerful computers, run detailed simulations of their forebears or people like their forebears. Because these computers are so powerful, they could run many simulations, and these simulated people may be conscious if the simulations were sufficiently fine-grained and if a certain widely accepted position in the philosophy of the mind is correct. So then it could be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. He argues, if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original, organic, biological minds. Yeah, the uh, that concept is. First of all, I think it's something that's the beginning stages of that are already apparent in things like video games. Like if you look at something like GTA Five, Grand Theft Auto. The entire world is living its life. Or something like Skyrim, which is another video game. The entire world is living its life around you, like independent of your character. And, you know, it's not AI, but it definitely is like the introduction to something like this. But I also think this concept is a a very strong case of like statistics can lie to you because the statistics of, you know, the likelihood of you being simulated versus real you know, the, the amount of simulated minds that could be created is a statistic that's created through the thought experiment. And, you know, when you, you, when you use the t- statistics that the thought experiment creates, then the odds are you would be simulated. You know, right. like I mean, it's, there's a lot of like ifs, ands, or buts in a thought experiment like this. Um, and I think we're, you know, you make a great point, like, I don't think all the non-playable playable characters, the NPCs of uh, Skyrim or GTA, are conscious. Or, but I, I was—I've been be reading one day though with the way exactly. programming right. goes, they might Exa- be. And exactly, I don't think it's we, that far off. We know, and even Morpheus brings us up in the Matrix. We know that our brain is just chemical and electrical signals, and somehow our consciousness seems to emerge from that and they they don't know where it comes from we know that it's very closely linked to the brain it might be a result of data processing they don't know but if you could replicate those same electrical and chemical uh it's you know synaptic connections or signals or whatever you want to call it that network of information you you could probably make something conscious so, I think it's going to happen in our lifetime. People yeah, aren't going to stop until they get there. Right. So, I mean, like you said, it's it's kind of an out there theory, but if you do get online and look into this, he makes some very good points. He has this thing called a trilemma, 
that basically says if even a tiny percentage of technologically mature post-human civilization were to run these simulations, they would be indistinguishable from reality to the simulated ancestor. The total number of simulated ancestors or sims in the universe would greatly exceed the total number of actual ancestors. Um, He goes on to talk about one of his three propositions he lays out. If, If one of them is true... Almost all people with our kind of experiences live in simulations, and it's possible that we are almost certainly living in a simulation. So we might be Sims. When I was playing the video game Sims as a kid, the operator, architect, whatever you want to call it, of our matrix we're probably living in was watching their Sims play Sims. They must have unlocked some kind of video game achievement for that, right? That's meta- Oh, yeah. They got gold on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, that got way over my head. So not only is this movie exploring the fundamental human question that even the greatest philosophical minds have focused their brain power and old school content on, there's also some very more modern relevant ideas being explored. Things that are so ahead of their time for 1999 It is truly hard to believe. I think we've already touched on it a little bit, but it is the rise of the sentient machine. One of my favorite things to talk about. So artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's great. An an AI entity or artificial intelligence with capabilities, uh, maybe not the motives and maybe not the end result, but at least the capabilities that are seen in the Matrix I think it is not going to remain science fiction. And really quick on AI, it's a very broad topic, but there's something called artificial narrow intelligence, ANI. That is already utilized in tons of computer systems, electronics, algorithms. It's everywhere in our lives. But there is a very big difference between that, which is, say, like a AI that can beat the world chess champion. It's the only thing it does. Right, that's an ANI. There's a big difference between that and the artificial general intelligence that is more like a human level AI, which is something that's really as smart as a human across the board. So I uh, read this, uh, this, this great kind of generalization is that we can currently think of AI in its present state as at being bad at what humans are good at. And it's good at what humans are bad at, just very generally speaking. So hand-eye coordination, walking up the stairs, you know, playing ping pong. I mean, things that come, riding a bike, you know, just anything that comes pretty naturally to humans is very, very difficult to get robots to do. But we can't store perfect fidelity videos for all of eternity. We can't calculate large numbers in our head i mean it's you can kind of see where i'm going with this that's um, the stuff that we may gain through something like Neuralink one day uh, we're exactly. augmenting our own intelligence with the right. narrow scope of what computers are good at totally and i do want to uh qualify everything i'm saying i i am not an ai expert at all i'm actually really <laughs> I'm really behind flip, the You times. tell me flip switch is not an flip AI switch. expert. <laughs> no, I'm good at flipping switches though, bro. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, computers can't do that, buddy. So don't sell yourself too short. 
You're just you're just trying to troll me, troll knife. <laughs> um, I I I'm actually behind the times. I feel like with my own tech savviness, but it is movies like The Matrix that opened my mind to the possibilities. It planted the seed for a very deeply ingrained fascination with the current and future path of technology and its potential to become a sentient, conscious being. My whole life, I have sought out books, articles, podcasts, anything I can from real experts on this subject matter about AI because of content like The Matrix. And I truly, from what I know, I am convinced that an artificial superintelligence or ASI is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. And of course, there's a big divide between what we have now and this ASI thing, you know, whatever, whenever that happens. But I, Nick Bostrom, uh, just to define ASI, he kind of puts it as, uh, and he's an Oxford philosopher, by the way, he was also the one that talks about the simulation theory. He says this ASI will be smarter than the very best human beings the best human brains in every field, including scientific creativity, general wisdom, and social skills, and the artificial superintelligence has the potential to be trillions of times smarter than humans in every possible way. And this is an issue that the greatest minds, my favorite thinkers, my favorite authors are talking about today all the time. Kevin Kelly, Sam Harris, Nick Bostrom, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, Bill Gates, Tons of people consider AI to be one of the biggest potential real threats to the human species in the near future. And of course, I don't think there's any doubt that this is going to happen. I I agree. If you look at something like space travel, it's a perfect example of the people that are consuming the kind of content like this, science fiction, going on to become the kind of people that create and realize the concepts that they read about or viewed in science fiction. Space travel is, you know, it's, it's, it's basically that exact same path. And the computer programmers and scientists that are working in this field right now are almost certainly the people that were standing in line opening day to see the matrix. And it, but it's I, just like that, that kind of fascination. It just runs not just through their, their personal interests, but also like through their professional life. You know, they're going to pursue fields like that. I I don't even think, though, that it's the science fiction is influencing. I mean, I'm sure it is to some extent, but I think that they these are people that are very familiar with scientific methods and the physical laws and the current state of technology. And, you know, they're not just like pulling ideas out of their science fiction influenced minds when they say there might be an A.I., that's smarter than humans in 50 years. I mean, they are basing this on real data and real well, no, I'm not saying stuff those that's guys. happening. I'm saying the people that are actually working on it, this is the kind of the kind of content that like the scientists that are actually working on developing this technology, this is the kind of content they were influenced by when they were kids. And Yeah. For sure. That's that's the through line. Not the people that are that are theorizing about it or coming up with the, the philosophical concepts, but the actual scientists that are creating this, this is the kind of stuff they watched when they were kids. Yeah, that's true. Actually, Elon Musk recently, um, 
texted or not texted. He uh, tweeted something uh, about taking the red pill and it was some like Kellyanne Conway Fox News anchor thing. And then one of the one of the Wachowski uh, directors just wrote back, fuck you or something, because the take the red pill has also been used in like alt-right memes. And of course, uh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. But um, anyway, the of course, one of the issues I think that's been brought up about this, many, many tech companies around the world have the pedal to the metal, balls to the wall approach to becoming the first to make a huge leap forward with AI. Because if you control a super intelligent artificial intelligence, you control the world. And it's if it's even possible to control this sort of resource, the matrix says no, it's not. It's they're probably right. It's probably not going to turn out well for us. All sci-fi involving AI has told us that no, it's not. Right. The first thing it's going to do is launch all of our nukes. It's that's like I said, we might be running. It might have already happened, and we're in the simulation now. Um, So that's all I'm going to talk about with AI. I do recommend this extremely fun, well-researched. It's honestly the best pieces of AI content I've ever read. It's Wait But Why, uh, a blog by Tim Urban, and he has a great, super long, in-depth, but just awesomely entertaining article about artificial intelligence. So definitely check it out. So I'm going to move on to another one of my favorite concepts explored in this movie, uh, that it happens during Agent Smith's interrogation of Morpheus. And there is so much gold here. He talks about human beings as being classified uh, as this virus instead of a mammal because we just consume resources and move on to the next resource instead of finding a symbiotic balance with the ecosystem. It hurt my feelings a little bit. I mean, it, it's something that strikes a chord, <laughs> I think, because he's a not really wrong. Totally. It's exactly what a super intelligence, uh, you know, AI with no empathy or mammalian instincts. That's how they'd like classify us, especially if they're trying to be a jerk. Um, J-hole. But the it, the concept I really like when they're doing that, that uh, interrogation is when the agent, Agent Smith, talks about the first iteration of the Matrix. The first Matrix was a utopia that didn't work. The minds inside of the perfect Matrix, they kept questioning the reality. They didn't believe it, and it made it easier for people to wake up and unplug, right? So entire firsts were lost. That's right. (laughs) The first theory that this AI had when this was happening was that they lacked the understanding of humans to develop a utopia, but they're like, yeah. That actually wasn't the issue. They decided that the humans were the issue. Their solution was to replicate the world with all of its problems, all the traffic, bad pizza, annoying coworkers, sadness, pain, suffering. So this is something... Troll knife. (laughs) (laughs) So this exploration, this topic, it's super interesting for someone like me who has always been a little interested in Eastern philosophy. And recently I've become even more interested in Buddhism and their approach to suffering. And the basic Buddhist premise is that 
pain is inevitable, loss is inevitable, death is inevitable, but suffering itself is actually a result of one's mind, their attachments, their reactions to the pain, the loss, and the death. So me finding this analogy here, I... Uh, It was partially intended. I do think it's a little bit more of a personal projection as well. But this is one of the great things about this movie. There's this openness to it where your interpretation can, can come in. And my very basic understanding and current meditation practice... I've been thinking about this stuff a lot and it, it my thoughts on Buddhism fit very well with the matrix matrix's premise that suffering is integral to the human experience and that we would wake up from a simulation if it was too good. And that is kind of the goal. If there is such a thing, you, you don't want to make meditation a goal oriented activity, but you are trying to wake up. You are trying to, end your suffering or at least mitigate it a little bit better and suffer less by changing our reactions and changing our relationship with pain or with sadness or with bad pizza. That's why I call (laughs) bad pizza. That's why I call the matrix a vantage point because it really does give you a way to frame your problems. You know, it gives you another angle to view the things that you feel like are most important to you and you think you feel like maybe like are roadblocks in your life, you know, it, it just gives you a perspective and you know, it's, it's not the same as having, you know, like a dedicated meditation process in your life, but it, it, for people who are untrained and things like that, it, it makes you think like, am I, am I suffering because I like to suffer or am I suffering because I'm not good at handling my emotions? You know, this, this other view of the world I think is, is very valuable for people like us that just sit around and think a lot. And the matrix, I mean, this is a movie that's made me think even whatever it is, 20 years down the line, like even without watching the matrix, I still think about the concepts that it's presented. Like, I don't know, at least once a month. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, there's a lot to unpack in it, especially for a movie about guns, leather, and cool sunglasses. I mean, there really is. Uh, The power of, and and butts, (laughs) the, the power of the mind and the butt is truly (laughs) interconnected. (laughs) It's brilliantly explored. Throughout this movie, I love when Morpheus is always challenging Neo's realization like, okay, so this isn't real and this is real. And Morpheus is like, what is real? Everything we see, we smell, we taste, we hear, we feel, it's all just electrical and chemical signals in the brain. So there's a real- something up here? Yeah. Something really, this is right along this line. There's the, the part where Morpheus is fighting Neo- in the uh, in the dojo, oh and yeah, Neo is like on the floor and he's all sweaty. This is such cl- a clever little bit of movie making. Neo's like down on the, on the floor, his hair yep. is like all messed up. He's all sweaty, and then Morpheus is explaining to him the Matrix, and he says, "You think that's you air think you're that's breathing? Air you're breathing now." And then when it right. cuts back, when it cuts back to Neo and he stands up, like he's all like composed all of a sudden. He's not sweaty anymore. His hair is is 
back to like looking like he just you know came out came from a GQ ad shoot. Right. It's like and it's really subtle. They don't ever tell you that that's an effect or anything in the movie, but if you watch it a thousand times, you'll catch things like that. It's like where Neo is unconsciously rewriting his own reality in that moment. And that's like, you know, kind of alluding to the power that he'll have eventually. Right. I, there's so much foreshadowing in this. And, you know, on that, I, I recently watched this with my in-laws and I would turn to uh, Anne Bree and I would turn to her and I'd say like, now this is an iconic scene. But I, I probably said it like six times because there's so many iconic scenes in the Matrix. It had such an impact on our culture, you know, even now. I thought, <laughs> I thought you were going to say and during that scene, you look over and you go, you think that's a fart you're smelling? <laughs> Just breaking the tension. Yeah, I actually haven't farted in a long time. I'm on this elimination diet, and uh, it seems to be working. I feel a lot better, but... Controlling your reality. Wow, that I is can't impressive. Even, can't even eat bad pizza anymore. It's kind of stinks. Can't feel um, pain anymore. <laughs> so... There in in the Matrix, there's this real crossover, in my opinion, of neuroscience and Buddhist tradition, and I love that. I think it's ingrained in scene after scene. But that, like I said, it could be me projecting. What I do know was more intentional. There's a lot of mess- messianic Christian references to Neo, which is Definitely. an anagram of one, as in the one. Uh, there's a lot of references to him being the savior, a Jesus Christ type symbol. There is a lot of uh, Gnosticism ideas that deal with illusion, reality. There's, of course, that uh, simulacra. How do you say that? Simulacra and simulation book. Yeah, where shows he keeps up all of his programs that he's selling. Right, exactly. Black market programs. And that's some famous author whose name I also cannot pronounce that, uh, you know, it's some in-depth philosophy book. But it's funny. It shows up on screen in one of the most seemingly, like, hacker bullshit filler scenes that I just thought was like, I didn't get it as a kid at all. I probably didn't get it, uh, you know, two or three times ago when I saw The Matrix. But when you get a little bit older and a little bit more eagle-eyed and you're looking for some more details, that scene has some of the most genius onion layer pieces of dialogue ever. And I'm still catching stuff in that scene, all these little references. Like when the hacker guy comes to his door and says he's his own personal Jesus Christ, my savior, exactly. man. Exactly. And he's yeah, like, they're really just hitting you over the head with it in the beginning. Oh, dude, back and forth. It's really, really good. So this movie's basic premise for the human apocalypse, I think is absolutely brilliant. We've got heavy simulation theory, thoughts about suffering, what what it means to be human. Uh, and I'm not even going into all the questions about predestination and fate that the Matrix explores. Like when the Oracle says, don't worry about the vase and Neo turns and breaks the vase because she said something about the vase. That moment, of course, foreshadows Neo's path of becoming the one after being told stuff about not being the one. But basically, the concepts in the in the Matrix, they're important, they're heavy, they're badass. But what really takes this movie to the next level is the execution of the concepts. Oh, man. So, the effects. 
so I, I realized I don't think the average person is going to watch two hours of deep diving on artificial intelligence, metaphysics of reality, all this other shit I've been going on about. You got to dress it up in some leather. You got to clip some to glasses talk about on it for nose, two hours. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, you got to put some amazing action fight scenes, and this movie absolutely delivers. I, I mean, maybe I'm selling people short. Because I do know that I like to think about this stuff now as an adult. I know lots of other people like to think about this stuff. But I attribute entertainment like this to shaping my worldview early on. And they got me while I was young, man. They lured me in with the guns and the flips, the techno soundtrack. They shaped my little brain into this receiver for thoughts and ideas about what existence is. And I think one of the best intersections of this action and philosophy happens uh, in one of the first fight scenes. So you know the Matrix isn't real, right? That's the philosophy part. You can bend, you can break the rules if you know that it's not real. You can hack it like a computer program. So the action part of that, you can run on the walls, you can fly through the air, you can dodge bullets, you can be the ultimate boss. It's the first three minutes of the movie where you have the another iconic scene with Trinity hovering in it in air, mid-kick, mid-kick ass, and time Juris slows my to a addiction, crawl. Crap. One of the best <laughs> lines in the whole movie. Wait, wait what is it? <laughs> when the cop says, if you're going to give me that Jurious my addiction crap. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. Cram it straight up your ass. That's some writing right there. Right. <laughs> it's it, it he really does seem like when you realize what if you've seen the Matrix before, you're like, oh, this non-playable character is just like so rote rote writing, you know? Totally is. It's a canned response. It's genius. But it's this this perspective painting around this bullet time. Dude, it was, it's cutting edge. It's genius. They had to put several of these SLR cameras in a circle between film cameras. I mean, this is like old school cool, man. I mean, they're bending time and space. They're making it f- make us feel like this world is a real life video game. I It's super effective for drawing you into a heavy uh, philosophical tale. And it's kind of... It's all it's like such a deconstruction of what watching a movie is because a movie is just a series of still frames that are played fast enough to give the the illusion of movement and right. to create that bullet time effect they're literally still framing every single image and then they're just running it through their video editor and it creates such such a smooth effect and like it's unlike anything you've ever seen before but it you know when you break it down it's really just the it's just the application of the most basic filmmaking knowledge and techniques just taken to a degree that no one has ever seen before oh totally i i think i need to try this with an iphone just get so, get Bree to like take a picture at like mid jump and then take a couple steps and i jump again and it it won't look as cool as when they actually filmed it with Carrie Ann Moss, but I could probably get a flying kick going that's pretty good, at, at least for Instagram or something. You have to jump like 120 times identical. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got to be perfect. 
not worth the effort. What you need to <laughs> yeah. do is you need to get some sort of harness system and hang it from a tree out there and then go in and just Photoshop out the the, the wires. There That's you go. That's what you do, Brett. That sounds like a lot I of mean, work, too. I uh, mean, flip switch. Sorry. That's what you That's do, flip switch. Flip switch. Flip switch. So I, with the action, I feel like the Matrix is paced super well. I I feel like that's a term that real movie reviewers use. I don't know. It's crazy. It's action packed, but for me, it's not too crazy. It's not too action packed. The first half of the movie is very intentionally vague. You're kind of left wondering what the heck is going on, who these people are, why these cops are bumbling around. There's this hot leather clad chick these squares in the suits, parkour, you know, you're just like, you have no context. One of my favorite scenes in the beginning, when you have no idea what the matrix is all about, you're when, uh, Trinity is running full speed to pick up a ringing payphone while a truck is driving straight into it. What, once you've seen the movie once you, that scene doesn't seem like totally ridiculous, but the first time you see the matrix and if you kind of try to watch the movie with the lens of a first timer with a beginner's mind, you're just like, what? why is she risking her life to pick up the phone? What is going on? I love when she puts her hand up on the glass too. And like the, the, uh, the truck's lights illuminate her right before it yeah. crashes into the, into the payphone or into the booth. It's such a, cool little piece of scene construction because like you don't as the viewer you're just you know you have no idea what's going on the first time and so you just assume that like you know she just ran in there with no escape path and they they really like they cut it together in a way that yeah i mean they, they truly are master storytellers and the vagueness that the wachowskis open with it it's it's okay because they don't leave you lost they set it up perfectly for a very satisfying jaw-dropping twist. They reference Alice in Wonderland because that's how you feel as a viewer. They got a Wizard of Oz uh, reference perfectly dropped in there. We swallow the red pill with our hero. We literally dive down his throat as he disappears, the virtual Mr. Anderson avatar, and it turns into this like gooey, shocking... You know, can you imagine waking up like that to be flushed down into another rabbit hole and into even more I remember action? When I first saw that, uh, I remember a specific thought. Uh, like I, I saw this movie the first time in the theaters. This is an era before spoilers. You know, I couldn't believe what was unfolding before me, and they really nailed that sensation of Neo waking up because. You know, when he comes out of the pod, I was convinced that that was the dream world and what he was seeing couldn't possibly be real because it was just, it was so fantastical and just out there on the edge. And so, you know, I, I didn't know where they were going with it at that point. I think I was also 19. So I was like a little bit of an idiot, but, um, that, that scene like really worked for me the first time because I, I was still convinced that the world that he lived in with his stupid office job, like I, I was convinced that was the real world still. Well, that's because we have been programmed like everybody plugged in with their minds enslaved to look at 1999, uh, you know. The height of technology. Exactly. Also, I may not have been a very discerning movie goer. <laughs> right. It was this when you were... A, uh, Successful podcast about content Garfield's, <laughs> right? Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, my my tastes were non-refined. 
Well, this truly is a movie. It delivers philosophy, delivers wisdom, action. Now, I think uh, you know how I interpret the genius of this movie. I will say, recently, my perspective has been a little shifted. Um, I think it will always change on repeat viewings, but there is an interesting lens in which you can view The Matrix. In retrospect, it seems to make a lot of sense. Once again, it's easy to miss this subtext because there's just so many ideas being explored in the story and it just stays so broad in some senses. But I do want to give you the quick backstory on this, which I think you know a little bit about. But the first movie that the Wachowskis wrote and directed was a neo-noir thriller bound. And it was one of the first mainstream films to feature a same-sex relationship without it being central to the plot. Now... In addition to that, considering The Matrix was created by the Wachowski brothers, they were born Larry and Andy, they both transitioned, they are now Lana and Lily. Now that adds significant credibility to this theory that's floating around that The Matrix is actually a trans film. Now, personally, I don't think it was specifically created just as a pro-transgender film, but I... I do think that the messaging is very applicable. Mr. Anderson lives his life feeling as if something isn't quite right. He's unaware of the fact that a social construct has trapped him and forced him into a role that he didn't want. He lives in a world of square cubicles, square bosses. He keeps this alter ego and separate identity hidden as the hacker Neo. And it's only when he frees himself from the bondage of this artificial construct that he can be who he is and is meant to be, embracing the Neo that's inside of him and reaching his full potential. So whether or not you think that this is an allegory for transgender people, no matter what, it is a positive message to embrace who you are and to be fully who you were meant to be and also to question the artificial constructs around us because even though we might not live in a simulation, everything from our language, our culture, our collective and individual identities, I mean, it really is an artificial construct. And this is something the book Sapiens, Yuval Noah Harari, I cannot wait to cover that on the program. This is something One he opened my eyes to. dropped names on this show. <laughs> it's, I'm obsessed with him. I mean... Scientific, the scientific construct defines a person's biological sex by their anatomy, genetics, other more easily defined characteristics. But a person's gender can be referred to as a social construct, a role, or a norm. So whatever your views are on this topic, in my artificial construct of humanism, I think all people should be considered equal. And if I programmed the matrix... I would make sure the Wachowskis have the same rights, representation, and respect as anyone else. Well, as far as winning life, the Wachowskis are definitely winning life. And I, I think I've never heard that theory before, but I can't imagine that the transgender angle not playing a part in the writing process because it's not like they just discovered in the last few years that they're transgender. Like those thoughts have probably been with them as far back as they can remember. And, you know, maybe it just 
in recent times they were able to take the steps that they that they felt they needed to take. So, I mean, I've never heard that theory before, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it's, like, it's pretty interesting, and I, I, you know, and that's one of the beauties of this movie is you can really see different ideas, and you can project different thoughts because, you know, there's so there's so many like broad concepts being kind of explored, and there's so many little specific hints too. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it it has a lot of credibility, um, and I remember when I first because I was such a Wachowski brothers movies fan um, I remember watching the trailer or some kind of release for Cloud Atlas and that was when I think it was Lana Wachowski was first uh, introducing herself as Lana and I remember you know being a little taken aback a a little bit confused and um, I had to do some googling about it but it still never really there wasn't really that connection to the matrix being a pro transgender message until much later so it really is kind of like an interesting little trail of breadcrumbs thing if if that is what it was intended to be but like i said regardless it is a very positive message i mean we should question the systems and if those systems are unfair then we should fight not just our enemies, we should fight the systems as well, and we should be who we are meant to be. I mean, that's what the movie is all about. That's, right. That is that is like the elevator pitch of the movie. Yeah. I, I do want to pivot one more time before I wrap up. I want to talk about Keanu Reeves and how badass he is. So Love him. He very badly injured his neck and his spine shortly before filming. Do you know about this? No. I honestly, I can't believe I didn't know anything about this until I started researching for this episode. So he had to do a lot of the fight training leading up to the filming because they had months of training before they started filming for these fight scenes. And he did this training in a neck brace and you can actually see if you are watching for this in the matrix, Keanu Reeves does less kicking than the other characters because his neck injury was so bad. We're talking like a broken fusion, you know, back thing. He had partial paralyzation in his legs. So in addition to entire fight with Mr. Smith, where he just uses one arm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's after he becomes the chosen one. So, that makes sense. But I mean, even in earlier scenes with Morpheus, with the agent Smith in the subway station, um, you can see, you know, and you, you can only see it if you're looking for it. I mean, he worked his ass off. Um, he's not only famously one of the most hardworking actors in the biz, but he is also famously one of the nicest. There's countless stories on the internet ranging from him, calling someone breathtaking at a convention, gifting motorcycles to stunt crews. There's photographic evidence that his hand never touches female fans when he takes photos with them. His hand just sort of hovers over people, and uh, he gets praise for being a respectful king. He gives up his seat on the subway for old ladies. He secretly donates huge amounts of money to children's hospitals. I guess it's not that much of a secret if we know about it. But he once bought an ice cream 
just to get the receipt so he had something to sign for a young fan. One more, he's even road-tripped with fellow stranded passengers after a flight he was on diverted. I could go on and on. You could also just join the subreddit called Keanu Being Awesome for your frequent Keanu updates. All that is made even funnier if you watch the movie Be My Maybe with Ali Wong. Have you seen that movie in Randall Park? I have not, no. Where he plays Keanu Reeves, but he's like this total womanizing asshole who's like abusive to everyone. (laughs) Oh man, it's so funny if you know how nice of a guy Keanu Reeves is. Like he's like, He's trying to like have like threesomes with all the all the girls in the restaurant. It's so good, man. Be my maybe on Netflix. Also, a good recommendation. Always be oh, my maybe. Sorry, that's the I'll title. I'll have to check that out. So yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Let's for uh, for a moment imagine a world, or rather, a simulation where Keanu uh, wasn't Neo, and the amazing Lawrence Fishburne was not Morpheus. Imagine a world where those roles were played by Will Smith and Val Kilmer. Oh, no. Right. I mean, flip switch. Don't do this to me. (laughs) Troll knife. Uh, Fortunately, we are in the darkest timeline, and Will Smith had a more important engagement called Wild Wild West. Oh, thank God. Thank you, Will Smith, for being in that equally masterfully executed piece of cinema <laughs> we're gonna cover it next week i love will smith <laughs> but he would have been Brett's terrible for the matrix oh yeah it would have it been so bad i mean will smith is great but he would have been he just would have been will smith because that's the character right. that he plays which that yeah. character works for a lot of awesome movies that i but love not for neo. but not for the matrix yeah not for exactly. neo not for morpheus i mean honestly those Lawrence Fishburne and Keanu Reeves are like almost like preordained casting choices. Oh, right. Because for sure. You couldn't, you, I can't even imagine those, those parts being played by any, anyone else. Like even to this day, when I see them, I just think Morpheus and Neo, that's just like interchangeable with their <laughs> right. actual human name. Right. Uh, so is there anything else, about the matrix that you would like to get into before I conclude. Well, I do want to talk about nothing I have is as deep as what you've brought, but there is one effect in the movie that I've always been fascinated with and thought was like one of the most amazing things I've ever seen captured on film. And it's the elevator fireball scene. Have you ever seen the making of this when they drop the bomb down the elevator and then the, yeah, it was a miniature, right? That they filmed at like a really high yeah, high rate. Definitely that. But what's so interesting about it is so like when the explosion goes off and the fire, it shoots out and it like it crawls across the floor like snakes as it goes to yeah. the lobby of the of the building. If you know anything about fire, you know that it goes up. So it's like so simple. This is like another example of them having these revolutionary effects that are just like the most simple application of physics and filmmaking is they just built the entire set upside down, and when they exploded this fireball out, it just naturally crawled across the ceiling of the set, this miniature set, because that's what fire is going to do. And then they just flip it in post, and it looks like this like reality-bending explosion, which is what it would be if you saw a fireball that traveled across the ground like that. And it's just wow. another example, like how 
how strong Nolkowski's understanding of filmmaking was and just like how far ahead of the curve they were. They, they, they don't need to have a Phantom Menace movie (laughs) created all shot on green screen it's like mostly practical effects and it's it just looks so good even 20 years later that's why we're covering it here on the content clearinghouse and we're not covering the phantom menace right yeah there's like i said the matrix is just is just all iconic sing scenes strung together basically i do have one more thing lay it on desert eagle the Desert Eagle that the agents shoot. Uh, recently, I was at a, at a shooting range, and uh, my brother-in-law and I actually rented a Desert Eagle because you could rent it for like $15. And we had 30 rounds of ammo. And after about 23 shots, we're like, yeah, we're not shooting the rest of this. This is, this is not a practical weapon for us. It's just like the most painful. It, it felt like every time we'd shoot it, 50 caliber, feel like you're just like hitting yourself in the hand with like a ball peen hammer. So kudos to those actors, especially uh, Agent Smith and the like, for really wrangling those Desert Eagles like pros. Well, uh, So wait, was it just the kick or was it the weight of it? All of it, man. It was like, it's just a massive gun. I mean, 50, 50 cal. It's like they create like anti-aircraft sniper weapons in that caliber, and it's in a handheld you know, just all contained pistol platform. It's, it's like absolutely brutal. Like I, there's no way if you had given me some ammo and said, here's 30 of these, uh, I bet you can't shoot all of these. There's, I would have thought you were an idiot, but (laughs) I would have been wrong after, you know, two thirds of the box. We're just like, yeah, we're not doing the rest of this. You know, uh, what, when I got my concealed weapons permit in Colorado with my data very long time ago, um, I did shoot a 50 caliber Smith and Wesson revolver at a gun range. And Ooh, the, man. the piece of advice that the instructor had was just hold on. Don't and drop I mean, it, it, it sounded like a, it sounded like a bomb went off in the shooting ranges, <laughs> like $2 a round, you know, it's just ridiculous. I, yeah, it seems like sh- it's just for show. I don't know what you would that do thing. with something like that. <laughs> Well, after we shot like three rounds of it, we noticed that like all the other people in the shooting range had stepped back from the line and were just kind of peeking around to see what we were doing because it's like the kind of thing that sends like this percussive shockwave out along the firing line. Just and like it makes a blow and everybody's ear like plugs the, out. Like the helicopter just crashed into the side of the building in the Matrix. Exactly. Way <laughs> to bring it back, man. That's how you segue. <laughs> all right. Wrap it up, Brett. Troll knife. I mean, flip trick, sorry. God, I'm never going to get used to this. Welcome to the new reality of the content clearinghouse, everyone. Well, this is just for this episode. We can go back to our simulated names in next episode. Good to so, know. Troll Knife, if there is a higher power <laughs> responsible for designing our reality and planning the fate of our lives, I would say it certainly seems like we'd be listed in the dark comedy category right now in Netflix. We've got the uh, reality TV show president. He's predictably awful. We've got potentially dangerous alien invasions happening. And I don't mean in the same way that the reality TV show president means. Uh, We also have a $75 candle created by A-list celebrity and founder of Goop, 
Gwyneth Paltrow. Have you heard about this? Of course. It is designed to smell like her vagina. (laughs) (laughs) So if there is an architect for the universe, I would like to ask him or her to fire the hack writer who wrote the 2020 episode and maybe bring on the Wachowskis to the writing team because the movie The Matrix serves intense philosophical flavors on a plate of action. It's got a serious side of storytelling. And it's not just the concepts that are explored. It is the execution that really should be praised. The Matrix is a reminder to live an examined life, to question systems, to look around and ask what is real, what rules should be bent and what should be broken. And it reminds me that it may just in fact be possible that there is no spoon. Flip switch, logging off. (laughs) Wow. Oh, man. I'm going to rewatch The Matrix tonight. I know I just watched it, but I'm going to do it again. I love this movie. Yeah, I wouldn't normally recommend this, but after watching The Matrix, I have gone and started watching Reloaded, and I'm going to roll all the way over through Revolutions and just finish out the trilogy, especially with rumors of a fourth one potentially coming out. Matrix 4, supposedly in 2021, which is an anagram for 2012. So I believe 2021 is going to be the end of the world. Yep, that's how... um, It makes sense. That's how numerology works, Brett. I saw it on YouTube. And by works, I mean, is completely ridiculous. So, Brett, I've said this every time. Get your candle. (laughs) Keep making us think. (laughs) <laughs> really appreciate your take on every piece of content you bring. Everything you bring is there's something shallow about it. And, you know, I think that's a really amazing it's a really amazing experience to hear you apply that big brain of yours towards something as trivial as uh entertainment. And I think that's the power that entertainment has in our life. You know, it it can inspire generations of scientists to bring sci-fi concepts into the real world or it can fill our downtime while we're stuck inside during a pandemic it's just like it's the reason that we create this show we feel that it's really important in our life and i i feel like you bring a really amazing take to everything that you bring on this show so thank you for that thanks thank you you're welcome flip switch thank you everyone for listening to the content clearinghouse we appreciate every single one of you Remember, please uh, get the word out, share with people. Also, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at The Content Clearinghouse. Uh, Send us some messages. We post a lot of interesting uh, information on there, too, as well, leading up to our show. So check that out. And uh, please join us next week when we're going to talk about some other great pieces of content. Uh, Troll Knife out. (laughs) 